Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant Charles Wyckoff. Wyckoff was a squad leader serving the 3rd Platoon Charlie Company, part of the 1st Battalion 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment. That's part of the 3rd Brigade Combat Team of the 82nd Airborne Division. Specifically, we're going to talk about a fight on June 6, 2007 in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. So to back it up a little bit, and we'll talk Afghanistan and Helmand Province and get kind of set the stage for this battle. Now, the United States entered Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks with a stated aim of capture, kill, remove um, the al-Qaeda leadership that was being hosted by Mullah Omar and the Taliban. So really two different organizations there. You have al-Qaeda, which is a global movement, international movement, we'll call it, with, with global aims. So they're more interested in, the, in, in attacking the United States and, and Western, um, Western countries like you saw in 9-11. Theirs is more of a global struggle, whereas the Taliban, and this is a really simple, quick, short summary, the Taliban is an Afghan is an Afghan movement. So the Taliban originated in Kandahar, organized, founded by Mullah Omar, the leader up until just a few years ago. And their goal is to establish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So they want a Islamic um, country in Afghanistan, an emirate in Afghanistan. And that is what they are fighting for against the Northern Alliance when the United States shows up in late 2001. Now, Mullah Omar and the Taliban granted, um, I was going to say asylum, that's not the right term. They allowed bin Laden and his followers, his group of Al-Qaeda fighters and planners um, to stay in Afghanistan. But they are different organizations with different aims. So the United States comes into Afghanistan and in pretty short order topples the Taliban generally expels Al-Qaeda. Now, it's tricky because the border to Pakistan is just open. And what you see pretty quickly, pretty early on, especially during a major operation called Anaconda, is a lot of Al-Qaeda fighters just start to exit Afghanistan. Because listen, it's no different than what we saw in Vietnam, where if, if you're hanging out in the country where the enemy has the aircraft, the special operations, the, the forces on the ground, like, don't be there. They're looking for you there. They'll kill you there. Move across this border where you can just walk back and forth at free will. And all of a sudden you're not targeted by the same, you know, overwhelming American force that you have, you know, five miles to your west. So you saw a lot of Al Qaeda fighters and leadership. And of course, bin Laden uh, make their move into Pakistan and the Taliban did the same. So at the time of the American intervention, the time of the American invasion in 2001, the Taliban had tanks. There were aircraft that the Taliban had control of, fixed wing aircraft. And in short order, the United States just decimated that entire force structure. And at the time, there was the possibility that the, this group would come back in another capacity. But I don't think we can say with a certainty we expected an insurgency. And what we would see over the next couple of years was kind of a focus. Remember, the focus is Al-Qaeda. Talib the Taliban did not attack the United States. The Taliban did not fund 9-11. The Taliban did not fly those planes into the Twin Towers. That was Al-Qaeda. That's a different group than the Taliban. The Taliban 
facilitated, I guess is the word I'll stick with, facilitated the the, um, the Al-Qaeda leadership making those plans, but they are different organizations. It's, it's fair now to look back and say, we should have seen an insurgency coming. I don't know that we 100% expected it in the scope that it was. For a few years, what we saw was, um, you know, a continued focus on any Al-Qaeda elements in Afghanistan. It's not clear that every one of them left the country today um, in 2020. And for probably the past 10 years, there's fewer and fewer. Well, there's there's not a established Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan like there once was. They've just moved to other areas like we were talking about. Why be the place where you could easily get killed, go somewhere else? But we still did see a fair amount of Taliban elements across the country. We did not have forces in Afghanistan of strength to be able to see, you know, know all and see all by any stretch of the imagination. And remember, the Taliban is a native Afghan movement. It started in Kandahar. It's it's the word Taliban means student in Pashto, the language spoken in many parts, predominantly southern Afghanistan, predominantly in Kandahar and Helmand. So it's not as though some foreign military had to sneak back into Afghanistan. It was just slowly over time, the leadership escaped, the high value targets that we would consider maybe moved, moved into Pakistan. But this was an organic local grassroots movement and baseline. It's not going to take very much to start back up again. And that's what we start to see in 2000, really by 2004, 2004, 2005, we start to see a little bit more of a, I think the Taliban at one point say, you know, it's clear the United States isn't leaving. We're not coming back, coming back. Maybe it's from Pakistan. Maybe it's from within. We're coming back now to expel the invaders. They have a different mission set, which is going to appeal to a group of people because it wasn't clear again, when the United States comes in, in October, November, December of 2001, are we just going to knock the Taliban over and, and get on out? Well, two, three years later, there's a pretty easy narrative for the Taliban to say, hey, these are occupiers. We, your countrymen, the Taliban, are coming back in to remove them from their occupation. It makes for a pretty easy narrative if you're going to set up an insurgency. And that's what we start to see 2004, 2005. By 2006, there's a decision made that we need to focus more on southern Afghanistan. And this is one of the problems with an insurgency is it's hard to figure out where to focus. And it's not clear that there's an insurgency from day one or a, a maybe an organized insurgency is the way to put it. So we had troops all across eastern Afghanistan. Again, there's a big focus on on where are these Al-Qaeda fighters moving to and from. There's there's kinetic engagements all through the East. Where, well, there's kinetic engagements across the country. But we start to get into, and and there might be a term for this. I don't know it. I, I hope there's a term for it. I'm going to, um, but if we're not in an area, the United States, or I'll say NATO at this point, if NATO forces aren't in a certain part of the country, and that part of the country appears calm, what does that mean? So we're going to see this in Helmand province. In Helmand province in 2006, early 2006, we're going to have, I mean, hundreds, maybe just over a hundred NATO forces in the entire Helmand province. It's 20,000 square miles. It's a big province. One of the biggest in Afghanistan. 130 is laughable. I mean, there's, 
there's, there's no way there's control over. And I, I believe I might be mistaken, but I believe that 130 is a direct action force carrying out raids on high value targets. So it's not even like they're, they're spread out amongst the population checking in. What does it mean when there's peace or at least not open violence in Helmand? And one of the issues we run into across Afghanistan, and it's going to be an issue in, in many, many conflicts is does that peace mean that the area is peaceful? Let's see. So here's what I mean. In Helmand province, one of the issues we ran into was the U.S. and NATO forces weren't pushed out amongst the people, which means there weren't a lot of U.S. and NATO forces to shoot at, to lay IEDs, to attack, to bomb, to, to, to fight. Well, because we're not there, there's, we don't see those engagements. What is happening in Helmand province in this time is – kind of the model that we've seen in Afghanistan throughout history. There's warlords in charge of certain parts of Helmand. Why is this a thing in Helmand more so than we see generally in other provinces? It's because of the money. Helmand province is one of the leading producers in the world uh, of opium. There's a lot of money to be made in opium. And it's not that everybody that farms opium is a criminal, but it's a great way to make a living. And if that grows best in your area and you're trying to provide for your family, it's what you're going to do. It's, it's something that's outlawed by the, the Afghan government, very challenging to enforce. What do you do with the farmer who's again, trying to, to support their family, you come out and burn their field. So it's, it's a challenging thing to enforce. There's a lot of money there. And like we've seen throughout history around the world, anytime there's a lot of money somewhere, there's going to be nefarious activity. There's going to be criminal organizations tied into that. The Taliban are very tied in with the opium trade in Afghanistan. That doesn't mean that they are necessarily buying and selling and trading in opium, but there's a lot of parts to that, right? They can, they can resolve disputes between, between landowners. They can organize labor for the different farms. They can provide safety for travel corridors. There's just a lot. Anytime there's a lot of money, there's a lot of money to be made. And the Taliban are using, and for a long time, have used the opium trade as one of their means of funding the insurgency. So there are some warlords in Helmand province that are kind of keeping the peace. And it puts the U.S. and NATO in a tough spot because on the one hand, there's not a lot of violence out there. And you don't see a ton of violence prior to 2006 in in southwest Afghanistan in Helmand. But that picks up quickly. I mean, today, when we look back over the course of the conflict for 20 years, Helmand has 962 U.S. fatalities. The next closest is Kandahar, 564. If you get up into the eastern provinces that we talk about often, you know, Logman, Nangahar, Kunar, 186, 186 compared to almost 1,000 in Helmand. I mean, the fighting picks up with a vengeance, and it starts to pick up here in 2006. There's going to be U.S. and NATO operations moving into Kandahar, and eventually you're going to see an influx of British troops moving into Helmand. See, the problem that we've come across as NATO is we're saying we are helping to stand up an Afghan government for all of the people. And I don't think that anybody ever expected this to look just like the United States, but we can't have warlords running certain provinces, even if it means that it's peaceful. So peaceful, you know, not open conflict in the streets doesn't mean that that is, is good. I mean, a warlord might order the execution of somebody. They're not reporting to anybody. It's a random person. It's a crime boss, you know, maybe, maybe is a term to use there. So do you leave it? 
you can't just leave it, right? You got to do something about that. You have to at least try to establish government control in that area. And there was pushback from locals in Helmand. There was pushback that said, don't, don't add government forces here. It's going to offset the balance of power and we're going to end up in, in some pretty nasty fighting. They knew what they were talking about, but to take it back, that puts, it's a really tough spot for NATO and for the U S you can't, you can't openly facilitate a warlord that has unlimited power while you're simultaneously standing up a, a national government, just a few provinces over. So nonetheless, we really start to see a push in Southern Afghanistan in 2006. And by early 2007, the 1st Battalion 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment, along with Sergeant Charles Wyckoff, are going to be deployed to Afghanistan. Now, they're deployed all across Afghanistan. This brigade will have units in a lot of different areas. And 1508 is going to be used in kind of a theater response capacity, which it's a mixed bag. It's interesting in the sense that you get to move around a lot. You may not be in one base and you're responsible for, you know, this stretch of road and that's it. And you, you get to know it inside and out that can be boring, but you can also learn a lot. If you spend three months, six months, 15 months in charge of one stretch of road, working from two different bases, say you become an expert that can help save your life. You can notice things are out of the ordinary. You can recognize the ambush locations. You can can see when a something is up with the road. It might be an IED that you wouldn't know if you didn't spend every single day moving up and down that road. On the other hand, when you are a theater response force, or I want to say they were the response force for southern Afghanistan, again, the fighting is really starting to pick up in this time frame. You're going to end up in a lot of areas you haven't been before. So again, on the one hand, it's more interesting, maybe more exciting because you get to see more um, – you to be involved in a lot more. You're going to stay busy. That The downside is you're opening the unit up to a lot more risk because they're not likely to be able to really gain that expertise you have being on the ground for long periods of time. It's a necessary thing to have. And we have these all across Afghanistan and Iraq throughout the duration of these conflicts. This is just the, it's not a bad thing. It's just the role that Sergeant Wyckoff and his men are filling at this time. On June 6th, Wyckoff and his men are on a patrol, at least a platoon-sized patrol, dismounted patrol in Helmand province. And Helmand is flat, relatively. It's, you know, it's agricultural country. So it's not crazy different in terms of the terrain than what you'd see, say, in the Midwest. The, in terms of the variation terrain, there's little mountains here and there and hills here and there, but, but generally it's flat. There's a lot of agriculture along the riverbeds that, that, kind of flood with the seasons and then and then recede and kind of a green zone. It's a stark contrast to what you'd see in the eastern part of the country with mountains and rocks and dirt and uh and lack of growth in some areas. Other part and then you know other parts of Afghanistan we even have more of a desert type feel. When you get into southern Afghanistan and kind of the lush areas of Helmand, it, it at times looks closer to Vietnam than Iraq or Afghanistan. It's crazy. It's a, it's a unique fight. One of the, one, one item to keep in mind in Southern Afghanistan, well, across Afghanistan are going to be the buildings that dot the landscape. They're going to be predominantly made out of it. Well, I guess I'll stick with Southern Afghanistan at this point, because I do think it varies across the country, but they're going to be made out of mud and the mud is hard packed and is crazy resilient. 
I mean, it can be a foot thick or more and will just stop bullets in their tracks. I mean, they're not going through this. There's, there's, you can, in some cases you can fire rockets at these things and it's not going through the wall. It's crazy how well they stand up to gunfire. I don't know. Maybe a country that's been at war for the last couple hundred years, just got in the habit of building all of their, their structures bulletproof, but these things are, it's crazy. And what that means is that every wall, every building, every fence, all of these are made like this serves as a form of cover during a firefight. Now, Wyckoff and his men are on a patrol. Again, he's a squad leader. They're on a patrol and they're ambushed by the Taliban, which is pretty standard form of fighting for the Taliban. They're, again, they're they're almost predominantly going to have fewer. They're almost exclusively, excuse me. They're almost exclusively going to have fewer fighters on the ground at any given point than the Americans. So they're going to pick the point to engage where they have the advantage, the Americans don't, and see what they can do. And usually, break contact. It's not going to be a long, long engagement. In this case, Wyckoff and his men are fired upon, small arms and RPGs. They quickly take cover. The enemy, as you would expect, is behind some of these really thick mud walls where the bullets aren't going through. And the Taliban's not stupid, so they're not standing up exposed from the waist up or moving in the middle of a doorway. They're doing everything they can to expose as little of their body as possible. Now, what that means is that they're able to lay down fire on Wyckoff and his men who are not quickly able to get behind walls or easy cover. They're relatively in the open, certainly compared to the Taliban fighters shooting at them. And as they're lying there, Wyckoff identifies the need to move around the side. Essentially, you're, you're looking at a wall that is absorbing bullets all day. In order to attack these guys and to reduce this threat, you have to move around some side, get behind them somehow. Sergeant Wyckoff takes it upon himself to run across an open field. And what that means is that he's exposed even more so to enemy fire. Remember, they were in a covered position. And, and being relatively covered doesn't, doesn't remove the risk of, of, any, uh, of getting shot, getting wounded, but, but it's better than running across an open field. He gets up, moves across this open field to maneuver on these Taliban fighters, an unknown amount, you know, say a couple, that are shooting at his guys. As he gets to the wall, he turns a corner. Turning that corner, he comes face-to-face, point-blank range, feet away, with two Taliban fighters. One of them, the closest one to him, has an AK-47 aimed at him. The man behind him has an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, aimed at Wyckoff's men. Again, he's within feet of these two Taliban fighters. And Wyckoff has no time. We'll call it a split-second decision, but that might even be be generous. He has no time to make the decision on what he does next. There's a lot of things you could do next. Put yourself in those shoes. You just turn the corner in the middle of a firefight. You're hot, you're sweaty, you're tired, you're probably thirsty. Your glasses are fogging up. You probably can't see as well as you want to. You're tired. You turn the corner, trying to help your guys. And face-to-face are two guys who are, are dead set on killing you and your people. And one of them has a rifle that he's picking up to aim at and kill you. Natural reactions here. Without any sort of training, let's talk about turning and running, going back behind the wall. You can talk about, um, how about at the very least, the guy that points the weapon at you that's just closest to you, 
there's two reasons you, you try to remove that target, try to try to kill that, that fighter. That's not what Sergeant Wyckoff did with the closest Taliban fighter pointing his weapon at point blank range at Wyckoff. He moved to the side to shoot and kill the second Taliban fighter further away who was aiming the RPG at his men. The reason he did that is you have no idea if that guy's getting ready to pull the trigger right now, or if he's going to have to size up his target for another six seconds. It's like when a soldier jumps on a grenade and we look back after the fact and say, man, why didn't you one, two, or why didn't you throw it? Why didn't you pick it? Because you don't know. You don't know if that guy was in the process of squeezing the trigger on the RPG that was going to go out and kill or wound his guys. He, 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 he wouldn't take that risk. So much so that he looked past a guy feet away from him, a Taliban fighter feet away from him, getting ready to pull the trigger. In a perfect world, Sergeant Wyckoff would have been able to reduce both targets. But let me tell you, it is... It is not possible, maybe is the way to put it. When somebody has their weapon raised and pointed at you, for you to be able to get off multiple shots at different targets without being shot yourself. And unfortunately, that's what happened to Sergeant Wyckoff on June 6, 2007. As he was engaging that fighter with the RPG, he killed that Taliban fighter who did not get that round off but at the same time was shot and killed by the second Taliban fighter that he looked past. So in that split second, without hesitating, he made the decision to protect his guys rather than himself. He made the decision to give his life, risk his life, because he couldn't stand the thought that his guys might, might take an RPG if he didn't take that action. And in turn, on June 6, 2007, Sergeant Charles Wyckoff was killed by that Taliban fighter and would be posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions that day. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.